A very warm welcome to the latest episode of My Middle East, Embrace the Middle East's very own podcast series. I'm Tim Livesey, CEO of Embrace the Middle East, the UK development charity, and I'm hosting this series. Through conversations with people who really know and understand the Middle East, we want to get behind the headlines to explore the real challenges and the everyday realities of life in this complex, beautiful, and sometimes troubled part of the world. My guest this morning is Archbishop Angelos, who is the Coptic Archbishop in the United Kingdom. And if you look at his CV, there's a lot to read. Archbishop Angelos, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about your fascinating background? Well, Tim, first of all, as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I think one of the blessings of what I do is that our paths cross so many times throughout the year in a variety of settings. So it's nice to be with you on this on this occasion. Um, I was born in Egypt, migrated with my family when I was very young to Australia. I was five. I grew up in Australia, finished my education there, started working, and then went back to Egypt to join the monastery. I was there for six years in the monastery of St. Bishoy, which is literally in the middle of the desert, halfway between Cairo and Alexandria. It dates back, you know, to, to the fourth century. And I was very blessed and privileged as I served there to serve as uh, the disciple and then private secretary to the late Pope Shenouda III, who was the um, our former Pope, and he was Pope for 41 years. So it was a wonderful learning curve and wonderful opportunity to expose to so much of the church, locally and globally. How old were you when you left Australia? And what was it like, or rather, what what was involved for you in in a decision? not just to come back to Egypt, to return to Egypt, but obviously to, to to join a monastery. Well, I was 22, which is by some standards very young because it's a it's, it's a lifetime decision. This was a this was a no going back decision, although there is a period of novitiate where you test the waters, as it were. But also, I mean, we see young people in lots of positions at the moment taking responsibilities. And for me, um, I was actually the first person in our church to be brought up abroad and to go back and join a monastery in Egypt. Wow. So I think it was a learning curve for everyone. For myself, it was seeing how I would interact with the monastic community and a monastic lifestyle. For the monastery, I think it was also interesting because they didn't know how they were going to deal with someone who, <laughs> for intents and purpose, wasn't brought up in Egypt and came from a different culture, was Coptic Orthodox, but was also Australian. And uh, Tim, honestly, and some people think I'm exaggerating, I, I didn't have a problem at all. It was wonderful. It was, there were six wonderful years for a variety of reasons, but I felt very embraced, very welcomed. Um, I had to make an effort as well. I, I made an effort of not being, you know, the the foreign kid who just came in and wants to show off as well, because, you know, there was an element of a possibility of that happening. But I just, I I was so lovingly accepted and I was able to fall into the environment there in the monastic community. I mean, speaking to you, I mean, listeners will will, will obviously have noticed that you speak perfect English. You're, you're, you're a native English speaker. Were you also a native Arabic speaker? When you went back to Egypt, was, was, were, you, were you fluent in Arabic or was that something, you, was that a bit of a learning curve? Well, this is one of the miracles, I think. You know, <laughs> we, we talk about the gift of tongues and the Holy Spirit. Um, 
I had never had an, an, an Arabic education. Uh -huh. um, and there was no force for my family to speak Arabic at home. So we spoke English and we spoke English and Arabic interchangeably, whether it was at home or, or at church. Um, but somehow, I, I mean, my vocabulary increased. I, I, I started reading and writing as well. Um, I became fluent and I don't know how transitioned. It was all very organic and very natural. So there isn't a particular point at which things changed. But uh, it just it just happened. And, you know, I joke about it, but I do think a lot of it is God's grace as well. It was, mm. It's a, you know, when I think back, it was a significant step for anyone yeah. to take. I took it in my stride because I think God's grace was there and it was sort of overshadowing and supporting. But, um, yeah, it, I, I've never looked back. I've never regretted it. Even when I was there, I never thought, oh, I should go back or I don't want to be here. It was a really blessed time. Wonderful. I certainly don't wish to pry because uh, obviously in your role as private secretary to Pope Shenouda, you were dealing with all sorts of things and, 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 and many of them highly confidential. But could you just give us a feel so that we're talking, we're now in the 1990s. What, what was the atmosphere like vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the Coptic Church as a whole within the Egyptian context as a whole? And before you came before you were sent over to, to England at, at that time? Well, many, I mean, some of your viewers may know that in, in the 80s, Pope Shenouda himself was placed under house arrest by the then president, uh, Sadat, who was, who was subsequently assassinated. Um, and so that was a very tense period where the church uh, was, was under immense pressure. The Pope was under house arrest for 40 months almost almost four years. Um, and we'd just come out of that. Um, Egypt was settling down, but we would have sporadic attacks on Christians. Uh, there was challenge in the public square. Um, and to see the Pope navigate all of this for a 22, 23-year-old who was just new to the culture was fascinating. And mm. it was very, very steep way to learn. Um, I, I jokingly said to his holiness when I, when I was coming here to serve, I said, you know, I've, I've got 60 years of monasticism because with you, one year is worth 10. So <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. But, but you know, it, it there was that tension, but there was also the church starting to grow abroad. And so I, I had wonderful exposure to all the monks and priests who would be serving abroad and coming back to get an audience with the Pope. I would meet them. Never knowing that I would serve abroad, but now that I do, the vast majority of the people who pioneered the ministry abroad, I had dealt with as his secretary when I was back in Egypt. So yeah. there was a bit of familiarity, and it was a global view of the church, even from my limited perspective. Did you expect, or rather, was there an expectation that you would be sent out into that global church? Um, I, I, my, I, if I got this right, you were sent uh, as a very young bishop to London in 1990. Never mind being made a bishop uh, so young, but just in terms of being sent out from Egypt to this country, were you expecting that or was that a surprise? Not at all. No, I wasn't expecting it. I, when I went back to Egypt, I was going back to spend the rest of my life in the monastery in the desert. Uh, there was no expectation I'd be, I'd be leaving for any reason or being sent out. And then when I was sent out, His Holiness then said, you know, you've had, you've had lots of 
administrative experience with me. I now want you to get some pastoral experience. Mm. And so I was sent as a monk priest first. So all of our parish priests are ordained as married men. But sometimes when there are small parishes, we will send out monks who are ordained as priests to carry out the service. And I was sent as a monk priest. Now, one, one very funny fact is that when I was being sent, I was given a choice between London and Honolulu. So, <laughs> well, we really appreciate you made the right choice. Well, I, I said to his husband, I said, listen, I really took him as my father and my, and my mentor and my guide. And I said, you know me, you know the ministry, you know my skill set, you know what I can and can't do, you know what's needed. So you send me what you think is appropriate. And he said, I want you to go to London because I'm very concerned about my children there, especially the young people, and I want you to go serve young people. So my first remit of ministry, really, as a young monk priest, was was youth ministry when I came out. So were you? Um, maybe I've I, I I've got this wrong. Did, were you first sent as monk priest? Subsequently, made a bishop. Yes, or, so I, was, so yeah. I was sent as a monk priest in 1995. I served here for four years as a monk priest, and then I became a bishop in 1999. And was there a bishop uh, who preceded you, or were you were you the first? No, I was the first, and I was I was consecrated as a general bishop. So in Anglican terms, it would be a suffragan. In yeah. in, in 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 Catholic terms, it would be auxiliary. So yeah. basically, this was the Pope's diocese, and he sent me as his auxiliary to manage it on his behalf. And so I was I was consecrated in that respect. But there was no one before me, and then. Fast forward to 2017, when this became a diocese, uh, there was no pre-existing diocese. So this has become the first diocese. I'm the first diocesan bishop. One of the one of the or the, the main point of this this podcast series is to look through the eyes of particular individuals, experienced individuals, to get a sense of the Middle East. Now, I think looking through your eyes, we have the opportunity to get a sense of part of the Middle Eastern diaspora, which of course is is a huge diaspora right across the world. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the Coptic Orthodox diaspora in this country that you, you came to join in 1995? And, and, and how has it changed? So first of all, we don't, for our community, we don't tend to use the word diaspora. I know some people right. do, but a diaspora is where there's been a dispersion, where there's been a mass exodus. Yeah. For instance, the Armenian, after the Armenian genocide, there was a diaspora community. Uh, for Coptic Christians, 90% of Coptic Christians still live in Egypt. So we're only 10% outside. So we're more of a migrant community. Um, here in the UK, the vast majority of our community, uh, until now, uh, are medics of you know various specialties because the trend was they would come here to get their membership in the Royal Colleges and they would, they would settle down and stay. And then you have second and third generation. Um, and historically, the other two major categories of Coptic Christians coming here would have been entrepreneurs and highly skilled migrants under the highly skilled migrant scheme. So it's a, it's a very um, professional, well-educated, very engaged community, which helps us a lot because um, by nature of medics, they have, a, have to move around every six months. So they must engage with the community. Entrepreneurs must engage with the market. Highly skilled migrants have to go to work. And so, first of all, we're about 35,000 in the UK at the moment. Mm. So we are not big enough to become our own bubble. 
we are sufficiently dispersed, so there must be integration. And the nature of people themselves means that they're more integrated into their day-to-day -day life. And I think part of my drive ever since, you know, for the past 20 years, has been to create an environment where there is no tension between being Coptic, because Coptic just means Egyptian. But we know for a fact that many of our members now who have joined the church are Coptic Orthodox, but they're not Egyptian. And then many of our young people here who are second and third generation are Coptic Orthodox, but they are uh, now very much British because of their, their culture and upbringing. So I, I wanted to make sure that we had this environment where people very organically became British Copts, where they understand, recognize, celebrate, value their Egyptian heritage, but there's no choice to make. And, and I think for, for all of us as human beings, and I'm sure yourself, Tim, through your own work, um, we, we, our development is an incremental and it's cumulative. Mm. And, you know, you have your roots and then you build up, you know, a, a foundation upon that and then you start to flourish from that. And I think that's the organic kind of culture we need to inspire our community, especially communities that have come from abroad. We need to make sure they have an environment where they are not struggling between, uh, not struggling with choosing an identity, but becoming an organic cumulative identity. That's, I find that absolutely fascinating. And you are very engaged in a whole range of um, outward facing, uh, social, socially significant work and, and indeed or might even say politically significant. Um, is this something, the vision that you're describing, um, is that something that you encounter with other uh, faith communities, for example, other eth ethnicities? Because I know you're very involved in interfaith work. Um, this sense of, of, of the belonging, the primary belonging or a significant part of belonging being the belonging in this place. And do you encounter tensions, indeed, um, that, that make that more difficult? So, so I must start by saying I'm not here to preach anyone. And, and, yeah. and there is no one way to do something. I mean, each, each, each culture, each society, each ethnic group has its own background and history and context, both historic context and, and current context. Um, but I, I do encounter many ethnic communities that haven't engaged in and haven't um, been so open to integrating. And sometimes that is because maybe you come from a situation where you've been persecuted. So you feel that you need to hold on and be safe and, and, and it's a matter of trust that is built up over time. Sometimes it's a matter of ethnicity where you feel that your language or your culture, your ethnicity is challenged, so you have to hold on to it to protect it. And that's a responsibility. So for a variety of reasons, people will engage with identity very differently. Um, but I do believe wholeheartedly that there must be a way to have an organic um, development of character that realizes that the first generation of one ethnic group 
is by no means the same as the third generation. Mm. And that they don't need to make a choice over here. They just need to transition. Never forgetting their foundation and, and their origin, but also not having to lie about who they are now. You, you're also very, um, an issue that you've thrown yourself into and, and, and you've become very much part of a, a movement almost, I would say, in this country is in defense of religious freedom. Why is why is that so important to you? Why is it something that uh, you, I assume, think that the British that, that we Britain should take a lead in in terms of its glo global representation? Uh, and indeed, you know, former Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt took quite a lead on in in <clears throat> setting up the the Mount Stephen Review. What is the significance of this issue for you and for us? Tim, when I first started, I I was a a Coptic Orthodox bishop in England, looking at the sufferings of Coptic Orthodox Christians in Egypt and feeling that I was in a position to speak, so I'd have to speak. Yeah. And so I started by speaking for Coptic Orthodox Christians in Egypt. And then as the Arab Spring or the uprisings started, there was more and more pressure on Christians in Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, and I thought, well, we have to speak for Christians generally. And as that intensified, where you had the, you know, so-called Islamic State and 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 situation becoming more and more complex across the Middle East, we saw um, Yazidi communities and, and Hazara communities and 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 Baha'i communities, you know, being more and more targeted. And it became about religious freedom, freedom of religion or belief. Because I believe as a Christian, my calling is to first and foremost be a pastor. So I am first and foremost a pastor, I'm a shepherd, I look after my flock. But our Lord also says that he gives us gifts and he says that you ought to have done one without leaving the other undone. You know, we, we don't want to have to choose just one thing. And the, the calling that I think I've received and the skill set that I have been given through no credit to myself. I've just been given the skill set by God as, as, as grace and gift, is to be able to 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 speak and to represent. And as a Christian, I feel that as an advocate, we have a responsibility to advocate for anyone who suffers as we suffer, because I, it just would be the most unchristian thing for me to do to think, well, my people are fine, so I don't need to do anything else. I just put my feet up. Suffering is suffering for any human being and you know even if that human being is unkind to you or even persecutes you um, he or she has been created equally in the image and likeness of god and we've got to respect that and i think one of the wonderful gifts of the coptic orthodox community and church across generations is that ability to practice forgiveness and reconciliation and to be able to win people over without raising a weapon, without being a political force, just by being gracious and true to our Christian calling. And I feel that has called me to do what I do and to genuinely speak about suffering from a perspective of someone who understands and knows. And I think, and Tim, you've seen this in, in our work and I think the, the value that I can bring to anything here is that 
I have one foot very firmly planted in the UK and the West, and the other very firmly planted in Egypt and the Middle East. And so when you're able to do that, you become absolutely bilingual. And I don't mean just mm. linguistically, <laughs> I mean culturally, experientially, contextually, and you're able to speak to both sides and become a bridge sometimes. And I feel if that is something I can do, then I am I am blessed to be able to do it. Yeah, I think um, that idea, that notion, that image of the bridge <clears throat> is so important and perhaps just not well enough appreciated uh, in our time. Um, Pope in in uh, in the in Latin, the Latin word for Pope in the Catholic context is pontif pontifex bridge, um, and and I'm really, you know, pleased to hear you talk about religious freedom as as a freedom for everybody who wishes to practice their religion. Um, we can or, sometimes... or even people who decide not to practice religion, right, right, which which people will attack us on as people of faith, but again, if God gives us the right to reject him, then yeah. we can't force him on others. And I think we do ourselves a huge injustice as Christians to try to force faith on people, because it, it it's exactly the opposite of what God does in providing this unconditional, endless love. Of course, we are limited human beings, but to the extent that we can, we need to provide this unconditional love as well. That's why I hesitate to ask you a question, but I, I think I should ask you this question because I think for many of our listeners, they will not be familiar with this tragic episode event. I know that it's it's something on which you've thought very deeply and you've spoken many times, uh, very movingly. So I, I would love to ask you again, just for a brief reflection and to some extent, a little bit of storytelling in relation to the 21 martyrs who were killed in Libya some years ago and how that fits into this very compassionate, very inclusive worldview. A lot of people will be very familiar with this very iconic image of, you know, men paraded in orange jumpsuits on the Libya coastline. Um, these were 20 Coptic Christians who were from, very, from a very poor village in, in Upper Egypt, who had gone to Libya to work. And they had one friend with them, whose name was Matthew, he was from Ghana. Um, and they were captured by the so-called Islamic State. They were held for a long time. They were tortured. Um, and then they wanted to use them as, as a statement. They depersonalized them, dehumanized them, commodified them, and put them on show. So they thought if they paraded them and they slaughtered them as they did, they would bring fear upon Coptic Christians in particular, and Christians as a whole. Because I'm sure many of your viewers will know that the Coptic Orthodox Church, Coptic Christians, represent the vast majority of Christians now in the Middle East, tragically. Mm -hmm. We can come back to that about statistics, but it was a direct hit on the biggest grouping of Christians in the Middle East. But in the same event, they also directed threats to the Pope of Rome. Um, but these men, although they were paraded, and and if any of you want to just sort of Google Coptic Libya martyrs, you'll see these images of men in orange jumpsuits being walked in, paraded, then kneeling, and people behind them with masked faces and big daggers who would 
and I'm sorry to be graphic, but literally would slaughter them, they'd slit their throats and, and kill them, execute them. But the way in which these men exhibited peace and tranquility and honor, I think, changed the world. Um, to the very last breath, they literally were uttering the name of Christ. And, and, I, and I've said on numerous occasions, you know, if you know you're going to die, then this is the time to protest, swear, be angry, do something. But they were totally composed. And, and this is something I caught a while later when I saw the footage. And I must admit, I've never seen the footage all the way to the end. Um, because I just, I didn't want, I, I thought it was just too much voyeurism mm. there. But the way they look at each other and comfort each other was just incredible. And the fact that Matthew, their Ghanaian friend, was given an opportunity to leave them, but he said, I'll go with my brothers. Wow. Also, it's an incredible example. And they became so iconic. Um, and actually, I think they became an icon of resilience and strength. Now, many of us in our traditional churches have spoken of our own martyrology for years in our own Coptic Coptic liturgy, we read the Synaxarian, which is the book of the saint of the day, every day, and inevitably every day, every couple of days, there'll be a martyr, because we've had such an incredible history of martyrdom ever since the reign of Diocletian. Um, but this was martyrdom on our television screens. And for us as a church, we didn't canonize them because canonization, or to recognize them as saints, is a process. But we immediately recognize them as martyrs because mm. their own murderers are the ones who gave us the proof. They were there. They were killed for our Lord Jesus Christ. They did not renounce their faith. They were martyrs. And so I think they gave us a look into historic Christianity where martyrdom was a daily occurrence, but then very powerfully pulled it into our current existence. And they're not alone because we know that many people were executed in Libya. You know, there were attacks in Libya and Nigeria and Syria and Iraq and many other places on Christians and, and on people of all faiths and none. So I think that was a, a significant turning point and it was a time for us to, to learn. But also I remember um, when I got news of this, I was in London visiting a family and a television station called me and there had been conversation for the whole day whether this has happened or not and there were press releases that it had happened and they weren't dead and then they called me and they said no we have video proof now can you please come down for an interview and as i started driving i sort of realized people were waiting for news so i pulled my car over and wrote out a tweet saying sadly it's been confirmed that these men have passed away and i had some characters at the end and as you know, any any person, any responsible person on Twitter or any sort of social media, you know, you don't waste characters. So <laughs> I just I just hashtagged Father Forgive, and I think that that gave me comfort. Something like thirty five interviews, and they mainly asked about these men, but then they said, "How can you possibly forgive?" And again, that was another Christian lesson in how we deal with tragedy.
So a very long answer to your very precise question, but I do think they were a turning point, significant turning point for the church and for people of faith as a whole. Thank you. Thank you for answering that question so beautifully. I want to go on to Christians in the Middle East as a, as a very broad theme. Um, uh, Pope Tuadros uh, recently hosted the Middle East Council of Churches. The Middle East Council of Churches is one of Embrace the Middle East partners and uh, I think, you know, does tremendous work. And I just wondered, how do you, what is the contribution of Christians specifically to the, the current Middle East and the years to come? Is there something specific that we have, a gift that we have that others, that we can offer? Um, in to, to what is, let's face it, a very troubled region. The thing that I have seen time and time again contributed by Christians in the Middle East is stability, a sense of hope and reconciliation. There are many stories you will hear from non-Christians, Muslims, who will say that, you know, if they want to fill particular positions, they, they trust Christians because they have a particular work ethic or you know, issue towards honesty. So there are very real examples of people who just on a day-to-day -day basis by being faithful Christians, and I'm not saying by any means that all Christians are, you know, great examples, but for those who are, it, it, it preaches volumes in, in the region. And then when you see churches, um, doing incredible humanitarian work, looking after not only their own people, but but others as well. When you see churches really reiterating their position as citizens, as loyal citizens, in, in many ways, there are very organic daily contributions that are made by individuals in very remote villages or in the cities. But there's also a contribution by our churches and our communities expressing grace and showing love and showing an incredible resilience, you know, in the face of such struggle that uh, people look from the outside and think, well, how are you doing this? Mm. And the answer very simply is, is God's grace. It is, it is really God's grace. Um, that's why, I mean, many people ask, so how do you see the Middle East without Christians? I do not see the Middle East without Christians. The Middle East will never be void of Christians. Um, there may be a, a greater and greater minority, but the Christians are there to stay because this is their, I mean, they're indigenous people. These are their homelands. Um, some people have been forced to leave, um, others have resisted, and it's going to be very much a personal choice, but there will continue to be a gracious Christian presence, and it will continue to be effective. Archbishop Angelos, thank you so very much. That speaks very powerfully to my own limited contact and understanding of Christians in the Middle East, and indeed, I hope for the listener, it's also an encouragement to you in terms of our own country and, and uh, the struggles that, that we're currently facing and how, by God's grace, we can contribute to creating a better society here in the UK. Thank you. Um, you personally and 
Embrace the Middle East. Uh, you know, I've, I've been dealing with Embrace ever since it was by the lands. Um, I've seen the transition. I've seen the ministry. I've seen the incredible work that it does, not only in Egypt, but throughout the region. So I, I want to thank you and your staff, but also your supporters, um, because it may not be down to money. It may not be down to financial support, but the mere fact that people in the Middle East know that there are others who express interest in them and stand alongside them is incredibly supportive. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Middle East podcast. To find the show notes as well as other episodes in the series, please go to the podcast section of our website, embraceme.org. And please consider taking a few moments to leave a review or to share the podcast link with a friend. Watch this space for upcoming episodes.